Hello, everybody, and welcome. You're listening to episode 13 of SFF Addicts, a bi-weekly panel podcast featuring writers from fanfiaddict.com, authors, publishing professionals, bloggers, and more, where we come together to chat about science fiction and fantasy, as well as the occasional jaunt into the wider SFF industry. I'm your host, Adrian M. Gibson, and this week we're venturing off into the wilds of space, perhaps even to a galaxy far, far away as I explore space opera with authors Adrian Tchaikovsky, J.S. Dewis, and Jonathan Nevere. The discussion opened my eyes to the sheer variety of stories that space opera can offer to readers, as well as some of the pitfalls and the ridiculous vagaries of the genre's name. I mean, where's the opera, right? But let's be honest, most genre names are pretty shit and don't do their books justice. Go check out episode 4 on YA versus adult SFF for more on that. Now, before we jump into the panel, a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by the amazing folks at The Broken Binding. They live to serve all of your fantasy and sci-fi needs with signed books, reprints, and the most amazing gift wrapping you could ever ask for. Make sure to visit them at thebrokenbinding.co.uk and use the promo code FANFI, F-A-N-F-I, for 5% off your next order. All right. Now onto the panel. Here we go. All right, welcome everybody to episode 13 of the podcast for our panel on space opera. And I'm very, very excited to chat with these three authors today. We have an amazing group. Uh, starting off, we have a fellow Adrian. Joining us is Adrian Tchaikovsky. He's an award-winning author of both science fiction and fantasy, most known for his Shadows of the Apt and Children of Time series. His latest novels, Elder Race and Shards of Earth, were released last year. And the sequel to the latter, titled Eyes of the Void, is due out in April. So thank you for being here, Adrian. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much for having me on the show. It's an absolute pleasure. And next up, we have J.S. Dewis, who I will be referring to as Jenny throughout the panel, if that's all right with you. Uh, she's the author of the Divide science fiction series, including The Last Watch and The Exiled Fleet, both of which were released last year. Double whammy of an amazing space opera. Uh, she's also a cinematographer and film editor and has written scripts for award-winning feature films and shorts. So glad to have you, Jenny. How are you? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, thank you, too. And finally, we have Jonathan Nevere. He's the author of the Wind Tide space opera series, including Goodbye to the Sun, Jati's Wager, and No Song But Silence, all of which were inspired by ancient Greek mythology and texts, specifically Antigone. And he also moonlights as an art historian and professor of art history. So welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Uh, so just to kick things off, I wanted to ask all of you what your personal relationships are with the uh, space opera subgenre. Um, this is more of a two-part question. So we start with what is your personal history, whether that's books or films, and then tie that into what are some elements of the space opera genre that you picked up on over the course of your over the course of your life and relationship with with that genre. So kicking things off, we'll start with you, Jenny. Yeah. So, you know, like probably many a lot of sci-fi writers, my initial um experience was with a lot of the classic sci-fi writers like Arthur C. Clarke and 
Isaac Asimov and things like that. And that's kind of still to this day what I think of as space opera. And I'm kind of interested to see how this panel goes because I'm still confused about what space opera is. <laughs> um, so I'll be really interested to hear the answers to, your, to the questions. Um, uh, but yeah, I think, you know, it's for me, the things that drew me to it were the grand sense of adventure, which could be said for a lot of sci-fi, but I think space opera really takes that to the max. Um, and delving into the unknown and, you know, just going far and wide and looking for things. I think a lot of people think of politics as a space opera thing. I don't really see that as much, but that might just be because I trend towards not reading as much politics in my <laughs> science fiction as the, you know, I'm, I'm in it for the adventure and the, and the spectacle. Yeah. And since you have a film background, what about films? Are there any films that stood out to you? Um, that were really evocative of, of space opera? Yeah, I mean, you know, arguably it's also fantasy, but Star Wars, of course, was big. I, I was a child when the, you know, new trilogy came out, and it was a big, big thing for me. And it was really my first, like, oh, there's science fiction, that's a thing. And then that's what really got me into reading some of more of the classics, which my dad had read, um, and he introduced me to and stuff. So. Um, I definitely think of Star Wars. Um, I'm actually a big video game nerd too. So like Mass Effect is one that I always think of. Um, and, uh, you know, some of the newer ones like, uh, Outer Worlds and things like that, where there's a little more exploration elements. Um, that's kind of what I, what I look to these days. Awesome. And Adrian, what about you? What's your personal history with space opera and what are some of the things you picked up on over the years? This is this is interesting because my um, my idea of what space opera is, I think, is 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 definitely um, is definitely at variance. I mean, this is I I think with a lot of these genre distinctions, it's it's like an Overton window, and everyone places it mm -hmm. slightly differently on the on the genre. So for me, when I was growing up, space opera was very much a cinematic thing, um, and the science fiction literature was what I would call more. Hard science fiction, you know, on, on the on, on on the base, you know. Though, if we're talking about Clark or Asimov or all the all of the things I was reading, um, it was very much, um, I guess, less actiony. Uh, so for me, space opera was Star Wars and um, that kind of more less science concerned and more um, sort of story and um, and the the fast fast paced action, but. I, it's one of those things, the more people you talk to, you realize everyone has a different idea of what any particular genre distinction is. But yeah, for, for me, it was very much a cinematic thing. And, and it, it's something I, I feel it's the, the focus of books has moved to encompass that as the films uh, sort of enter the popular imagination. Mm -hmm. And we will get into that sort of the shifting perspective of what uh, space opera is like, especially in the, in the realm of books. Uh, but Jonathan, do you want to share your side of things first? Yeah, I mean, I, I have a lot of similar uh, backgrounds to actually both Adrian and Jenny. I, you know, I, I'm 50, so I saw the original Star Wars in the theater as a child. And I mean, that was really the first moment where from a cinematic viewpoint, I experienced something that for me felt like what we would call space opera. Um, and I remember seeing that binary star in the Tatooine moment. And that was just like a light went off for me. And it was like, wait, excuse me. You know, it was like the, the perceptions of my limitations of what worlds were like or could 
could be like was just shattered. And um, that was just awe-inspiring to me. And I think as I, as I moved forward, the same kind of authors really started to become of interest, Arthur C. Clarke and that idea of, of distance and the vastness that you could encompass mm. and that kind of sublime, that sublime sort of awe that you could have in the cosmos. Uh, that to me was really what space opera was. It was, it was the distance. So it's interesting. We've been talking about it. I too have a very different perspective. A lot of people I talk to think of space battles and, and for me really space opera isn't space battles. It's, it's like, it's, a, it's adventure as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about crossing great distances and having adventures in a galactic environment. Yeah, well, this ties in perfectly to to some of the things that, um, obviously the 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 perception shifts depending on each person, just as we've seen hearing from the three of you. But there's some things that that people would come together and say define space opera, and you know, I have I have a list of things, and and obviously from one person to the next, that that could shift. You know, we have melodramatic space adventures, which for me is quintessential space opera. There has to be this this Jonathan, like you said, the sense of distance and the sense of adventure as you're traveling from one place to another. But then we have things like FTL travel or some form yeah. of uh warp drives, et cetera, that gets people from one place to another. Um and obviously that takes so many different forms as well. We have futuristic weapons and technology, galactic empires and interstellar warfare, alien races, of course. The alien races, I think for me, is something that adds to the to the adventure and and oddity of space opera where you don't necessarily get so much of that in hard sci-fi but once you get into space opera you're introducing these things that are otherworldly and then something else that for me feels very quintessential to to space opera is romance or just relationships dealing with the the human side of things as it's contrasted against such an um, inexplicably strange and beautiful backdrop of different planets or outer space. So does anyone want to jump in here and, and sort of tackle not necessarily all these things, but kind of give an idea of what space opera, what defines space opera for you and how, I guess, how that has uh, met contention with, with other people that you've come across? Yeah, so I I can jump in here. I think one thing I remember seeing a while back on YouTube was someone um, who had given a hard and fast definition of space opera and that it was character-driven science fiction. And that's what it was. And I was like, no, (laughs) (laughs) what? (laughs) Because in my brain, you know, it's much more like the epic fantasy equivalent of to fantasy you know where it's like a lot more about the battles and the politics and the the grand scale of things and maybe a little that doesn't mean that the characters are flat or useless or you know not good but they're it's a lot less focused on the characters and more driven by the plot um and that's kind of what i always thought of it as um so after that i was like am i wrong like have i just been thinking of this wrong my whole life i don't know (laughs) maybe i have so confused (laughs) it's very confusing honestly um but yeah i think you know i don't i don't i see more modern science fiction as become or space opera as becoming more character driven um 
but I don't really see that as like a definition of the genre as far as like when it, you know, really started, which I don't, I don't know the history of it, but I kind of think of like the old, like, you know, comics or like five cent books that would have come out back in the day when science fiction was really starting like that kind of like over dramatic kind of space opera thing. And that I don't think was very character driven as far as I, as far as I know. So. Although I'm trying to think, um, John Carter of Mars was for me, obviously you could say that's like space fantasy and it directly influenced things like star Wars and, and, uh, so many, so many other novelists down the line. But that was that that felt pretty character driven to me. But I think there was perhaps a point in the um, 50s, 60s, 70s where things went more towards plot driven, a lot more emphasis on the science. Um, So it's kind of this like strange roundabout way of perhaps now space opera is kind of returning a bit more to its roots. I. I mean, I, I, I think that they, I mean, I don't think there's a hard line between space opera and space fantasy. Um, mm. I mean, I, you know, with, with Star Wars being the quintessential setting for that, because it is very much a fantasy story played out in space. Um, but it's still, because, you know, the trapping the lone kind of make it a science story at the same time. I think one of the things, um, one of the big things with space opera is it's importing well, it's either importing science fiction trappings into stories that are traditionally told in other settings, or it's importing those type of stories into a science fiction setting. But um, there are a lot of space westerns which are very, which all I think fall within that space opera thing. There are, I mean, Star Wars is heavily influenced by the Kurosawa samurai um, movies. Hmm. Um, And as you know, there's a lot of kind of fantasy and mythic storytelling that goes into space operas. It's uh, in the same way as there's a lot of sort of, um, I think there's a whole other subgenre of kind of science fiction noir, sort of science fiction, um, you know, sort of detective stories and cyberpunk and all that sort of thing. Um, I think science fiction as well as being a genre itself is also just a very good thing to mix with other stuff to get new new kind of literary areas to explore and space opera is kind of what you get when you're telling a certain kind of adventure story um and making it a space story as well and obviously there are tons of trappings that that come into it you know all the things that i mentioned before ftl drives and and uh galactic empires and what have you but Mm -hmm. perhaps building on what you said adrian bringing in all these different genres and mixing it with the idea of space and science but lessening the focus on science just a bit to Mm -hmm. allow those other genres to bring in a certain degree of adventure or Mm -hmm. in the case of noir uh, a little bit more mystery and i totally agree with you science fiction in this particular instance works so well as this genre blending exercise specifically for the reason of um the the sheer vastness of of um stories that can be told it's it's because space is infinite and the imagination is infinite and so people can bring in noir or mystery or they can bring in a western or they can bring in samurai films and then mix it with this uh this mysterious this mysterious 
nature of space or other planets or aliens and what have you and have the opportunity to tell a really kick-ass story you know jonathan you want to get in here yeah yeah i mean i almost feel that recently it's either that there's now a subgenre a set of subgenres within a subgenre so it's now there's an umbrella of space opera and there's right all these series of new subgenres underneath it um you know you have a hard sci-fi direction and a soft sci-fi character driven right plot driven um and it's either that or it's kind of um, the more mashup approach which we see so much now too where it's getting mashed together um and it, it's interesting. I wanted to just go back to something that you mentioned about how our work butts up against people's expectations of space opera, because it, it's kind of interesting. I, I mean, I definitely fall in the soft sci-fi zone for sure, but I also don't write alien species and I, I write human, I write really human only space opera, which is mm-hmm. interesting too. And, and sometimes people comment about that as well and say like, you know, I wish there would have been, you know, multi-species within this vast galactic space. Um, but, you know, I do think this, the subgenre within the, within the subgenre thing is, is something that I see a lot in descriptions on, on space operas these days, whether it's a character-driven space opera, whether it's X kind of a space opera. Just jumping off of what you mentioned about your own work, from my perspective, um, there is something strange about the 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 fact that someone would complain about, oh, there's no alien races, et cetera, et cetera. If you look at something like Dune, a lot of the, a lot of the alienness about it is the simple fact that this is, um, it's an alteration of what we know and are familiar with of ourselves as human. And so you can use human races or you can use human characters and place them in a culture and a setting that has shifted them in such a way based on the um, based on the geology of the planet, based on their environment, based on how their culture develops in that environment. And that in and of itself is alien because of the environment that that version of, of a human has changed to something that is different than what we're, we're used to. And that for me is satisfying too. That is enough of the alien presence for me to be engaged and think, how is this different? even though it is an altered analog of our own species. I'd be curious to hear what, what the other, what, what Jenny and, and Adrian have to say about it. Cause for me, it's a world building choice in a way mm-hmm. it, it's, has there been first contact or is there a longstanding epic history, right? Of interspecies sort of civilization, or is it a human isolation <laughs> community, right? In a galactic setting. Yeah. Well, Jenny, Adrian, do you want to do you want to jump in on that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think of space opera um, as far future. Um, you know, I don't think that there's any series I can think of that takes place in the you know in our immediate future that I would call space opera. Um, so yeah, I think you're definitely onto something there as far as it being something that whether it's linked to you know our Earth history or not you know i'm thinking of something like battlestar galactica like that i would still call space opera and we don't really are they you know associated with earth i mean i guess in the end we know they are but spoilers (laughs) spoiler alert (laughs) um but like you know that's something where it's like that's in the future it's more military based you know obviously but it's definitely something i would think of as space opera um and 
then there are other settings, which are, I'm thinking of like Planet Side by Michael Mamey or things like that, where it's like, that's near enough in our future. I wouldn't really call that space opera. I would just call that military sci-fi. Um, I mean, there's, so there's, yeah, there's, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say that the expanse. I think, I think you could, mm. you could make a case mm. that the expanse was both sure, near yeah. future enough and space opera enough, but it, yep. the expanse is, is, is frankly, it's a lot of things. It, uh, you know, it ticks a lot of boxes simultaneously. It's quite, it's quite a, a, a masterpiece, frankly, of, of, balancing all of these factors which would not you know a bit like it holds a number of opposing magnet of um, magnetic poles together that you, that are quite hard to to do that 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 uh, smoothly i mean uh i mean i uh so my work is full of non-human species uh we're talking about talking about aliens um but then I started writing what I certainly considered to be very science-based stuff, which was still all about the non-human viewpoint, whether it's sort of alien-alien or kind of uplifted Earth species aliens. So, um, and it, that's really just that kind of the thing I'm interested in. Um, I like reading stuff about about interesting aliens. I like writing stuff about, um, you know, from the point of view of things that aren't human. So that was always going to be where I went, no matter what corner of the genre I, I write in. But um, in the case of something like Children of Time, you have an alien that is born from the manipulation of, of of humans. So in a way, it's like you're you're getting this this human experience, but projected onto an alien species because of um, what's the term? I think it's uplifting. Correct. Yeah. 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 So do you want to do you want to touch on that a little bit? Just uh, how you. If anyone hates spiders, just uh, check out for a few minutes. There right <laughs> well, I mean, I will say I've been contacted by a, fa- by a fair number of arachnophobes saying that they hate spiders a lot less since they read the book. Oh, that's great. So, you know, I feel I've saved a few spider lives uh, <laughs> through my writing. Um, yeah, so, so in, yes, so in Children of Time, you have a world where there's a, an uplift project, and instead of the expected monkeys, which uh, due to a, a tragic explosion failed to get delivered, um, the uplift nanovirus works on spiders and ants and a variety of other invertebrates. Um, in the um, the sequel, Children of Ruin, there are octopuses, uh, a minus minor spoiler, which are really weird. Uh, and there's also an actual alien, alien, alien in there as well. And then there's a, th- a third book that's coming out toward the end of this 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 year as well, um, with even even more stuff in it. Um, and yes, it, it's all to do with exploring the viewpoints of uh, the non-human. I, do, I, I mean, I've written a number of books and I'm continuing to write books where this is my focus because it's the thing that interests me. Um, I am just working up to doing a full-on sort of alien ecosystem perspective book, um, which I'll probably be working on towards the back end of this year. So it's a, an, it, which it is definitely, I think if, if you, I actually, so here is the thing, here is the, here is the, where I feel the dividing line is between, um, so the aliens in, uh, from or my aliens in Shards of Earth, which is chock full of alien sort of species and cultures and so forth. And the aliens I will be writing and the aliens I have written. Um, Aliens are alien. Aliens are not um, 
people who happen you know are not basically cats like humans who act a bit like cats and a bit like humans as you see in a in an inord- there are an inordinate number of cat like cat aliens for some reason um and the aliens theater production are not cats pe- of course yeah a- aliens are not are not human with big lumpy foreheads and a very limited range of emotional responses aliens are alien and if you're doing it as a a hard science fiction approach then you kind of need to have them as alien and think through well what is an alien where do they come from how do they evolve if you're dealing with a space opera approach they can be all of the things i've mentioned they can be cat people they can be people with lumps they can be uh people with big kind of um rubber rubber heads um bought from the local uh halloween store um because that's not the focus of that's not where the focus of the space opera story is um, you know, you can also have perfectly alien aliens, genuinely alien aliens in space opera as well. It doesn't in any way exclude them. I, but I'd say it doesn't actually demand um, the thought experiments that a hard science fiction book kind of does demand, because you're not working to the same rules and the same restrictions. That's very true. And yeah, that has actually gotten me thinking so much about how... Um space opera has been influenced by the visual medium of television and and films and how what you just said you know immediately in my head i'm thinking okay star trek check uh star wars check um the original battlestar galact the original battlestar galactica no that that was that was robots and stuff Uh, doctor who doctor who is definitely one that goes in there but it's just this um this direction of focus that that that, the genre exactly that the genre um, doesn't necessarily uh, necessitate in a way, but allows breathing room for. So space opera allows authors uh, to focus on different things and direct the lens towards different uh, focal points, as opposed to the thought experiments that, that, that you brought up and getting into more of the biology or the science of it and, and that kind of thing. I mean, yeah, it 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 um it opens a a space for a whole range of stories that would be quite difficult to tell if you're trying to be very strictly scientific about things. Because mm-hmm. you know, I mean, if you look at let's say um, space opera setting, there are like here our here's our space environment, here is this a space environment, this is a space environment. We all have roughly equivalent technologies, and we have this kind of cold war going on, and we have lots of interesting politics and espionage and all these things none of that really makes a great deal of sense in the, in terms of, of hard science. I mean, just having three cultures that are able to interact on a human level is kind of bizarre, but it's the meat and drink of space opera, and it's what makes a lot of space opera um, stories interesting, is you can have those and you don't need to kind of fret about, well, how did this come to pass and so forth, and mm-hmm. invent some weird alien Earth species to gloss it all over or something like that. Yeah. and I. I- yeah, that's perfect because there is um, obviously an economy of of words that authors have to take into account when they're writing. And it's like, do you dedicate more time towards the scientific explanations? Obviously not to the point of just grandiose info dumping or anything like that, but keeping the reader engaged in a certain way and tickling a certain itch, whether it be the science or the biology of it, uh, whether it be the geology and the planet and what gave birth to an alien species like that. Um, and then I'm thinking of Jenny and Jonathan, both of your your novels, where there is a lot of um, a lot more focus on the the human experience within these alien environments. Jonathan, whether it's 
uh, whether it's planets, um, far-flung planets, or Jenny, in your case, whether it's a ship, and you have these different environments and how they, the humans interact with them and how that in turn manipulates their way of, of thinking. Uh, Jenny, do you want to, do you want to jump in on that and just sort of talk about like the human experience within space opera? Yeah. So in my series, um, there's really only in the first two books, at least one alien species. And then there's sort of two hybrid species that were created a long time ago between humans and this alien species. And that's really the extent of it. And, you know, that was purposeful as far as keeping, you know, the thematic threads going. I won't get too deep into it for spoiler reasons, but, you know, it was it was an intentional choice. And the idea is kind of like, um, which this was very much inspired by um, Battlestar and Mass Effect and things like that. But, like, they use a lot of that alien technology. And even though that those aliens are extinct and not around anymore, they it's their technology is everywhere. It's their ships, it's their FTL drives. It's, you know, almost everything that they encounter on a daily basis was derived from these alien technologies and they wouldn't be where they are without it. Um, so it's definitely an interesting thing to look at as far as how do these interactions you know, we usually think of like, oh, we have first contact and then they're always part of their life after on. But what if you have first contact and then they're gone and you're still left with the remnants of these, you know, how does humanity take what they've learned from this species and grow or regress or fight about it or who knows, you know, there's a lot of different options you can take. Um, so that's kind of what I like to play with as far as like playing with, you know, a trope that you are used to seeing but how can we kind of twist it and do something a little different with it mm -hmm. and like you mentioned the the gene pool has been tainted so to say and how that changes people's perspectives of of other um crossbreeds other other uh people within their own species it's like this this game of you know, what's your perspective on the aliens? And then what's your perspective on these humans that have been uh, mixed with them, like gene spliced and, and that kind of thing. And, and how that comments on the division that we see within our own lives and our own world, but how that's translated out into space. Yeah, definitely. And Jonathan, what about you? Do you want to get in on this? Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm really interested in, the human experience and what I like, I guess what I like, I realized something I was thinking about today and in, in reflecting after the, having the three books run their course, I realized that um, I like to write close POVs in expansive settings. And I think that space opera gives me the ability to take a character driven approach, but planet hop. And, and I'm not a, I'm not particularly drawn to um the spaceship experience. Um, for me, space opera is about being able to move from planetary setting to planetary setting. That's what excites me as a writer. I still do have spaceship environments and scenes, but not really big battles. But I think that for me, the, the interest is about placing humans in different environmental and just sort of ecological conditions and have there be some kind of conflict. And whether that conflict is, um, like Adrian was saying, a disparity between, let's say, technological 
um, in in a certain society, a technological capacity or access to technology between different cultures, even in the same places. That's what that's what really excites excites me about working with that human experience. And depending on where you are and what you're surrounded by, whether it's environment or socioeconomic conditions, you end up being able to kind of describe a number of different things within the same book. And, and that's, that's, that's something that I think really excites me about the human experience in space opera is having the ability to throw people into all kinds of different settings um, and move from place to place. I'm sure you want to talk, it sounds like you want to talk about FTL down the road <laughs> and we at some point. Um, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not a hard science fiction writer. Full disclosure, I'm, I'm soft sci-fi. Um, I love reading hard science fiction space opera. I really enjoy it, partly because it's always a learning process for me, but I don't have that, that knowledge. Mm. So for me, um, FTL is an ability to move me from place to place and, and to put people in, in conditions. As opposed to getting into the nitty gritty of how that FTL works. Yeah, don't ask me ever how that works. It just works. So I have not you done push, my research. Just worry, push but. the button. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, we've all we've all been talking about um, different aspects of your particular novels, but I'm curious um, what the decision making process was like to get you towards writing and publishing your first uh space opera novel sort of like what was what was the thought process in terms of i want to write space opera and these are the reasons why and this is what i i hope to achieve with that so what was your first space opera novel adrian we'll start with you and uh how did that how did that come to come to existence in the world uh so uh, I, I am at variance with my readers on this point, but my for my <laughs> personal point of view, my space, first space opera novel is actually Shards of Earth from last year. Um, Children of Time gets gets called a space opera a lot. It in my mind, it's it's, it's more quite a hard. sciencey book. Yeah. Um, but you know, everyone's mileage varies wildly on that point, mm -hmm. as we've discussed. So for Shards of Earth, um, I just come off Children of Ruin. In Children of Ruin, there is a lot of pottering about within a solar system, and in order to keep it within the bounds of the the approximate bounds of possibility that I was working with, that takes a really long time. It takes a very long time to go from planet to planet, even with, with technology vastly more advanced than ours, because physics and the idea of just, oh, I just want to have far, faster than light travel and artificial gravity and all these other things that probably couldn't ever exist because they make things so much more convenient to tell stories and you can zip around and you can go from place. You're not stuck, stuck with just, just these planets. You can have some other planets if you want some new planets and you can have people standing on the floor and all of this <laughs> basic quality of life things for my characters that they had been doing without for a long time. Uh, and so, the, and yes, and then because it was me, I decided, fine, I'll have faster than light travel. And then I will go into ridiculous amounts of detail about how it works and what it does and make it the focus of the book. And that's kind of my own personal bugbears, frankly. But yeah, it was really just the, the opportunity to play in that bigger playground where I didn't basically have to hand everything into the science teacher in my head and get it marked with red pen after each one. And uh, Jenny, what about you? What was your thought process going into writing your first space opera novel, whether it was The Last Watch or, or something that was unpublished before that, um, or some script that you that you wrote back in back in the day? 
Yeah, so uh, fan fiction withstanding. Um, <laughs> the Last Watch is my first um, space opera novel. Um, I had written one novel prior to that, which was post-apocalyptic, because I was fresh off of Fallout 4, and it was on my mind. <laughs> so that's what I wrote. But um, after I wrote that, I, I never queried it or anything, but I kind of went through the process of like learning how to write a query letter and all of that stuff. And I realized that nobody wanted my post-apocalyptic novel, so I wasn't even going to try. Um, <laughs> so going off of that, I was like, okay, what else do I like, you know? that I could write about. And obviously science fiction came to the forefront and, you know, things like Mass Effect inspired that and Battlestar Galactica. Um, but really what inspired it was I had an idea based on a song lyric, um, that goes, um, I am forgetting it. It's literally on a poster about that. I'll fly a starship across the universe divide. <laughs> um, that's obviously a science fiction book. Um, <laughs> So really, it was just that inspiration was like, okay, I guess you're writing a space opera. Um, but what I like to say slash warn people is that The Last Watch, I don't see as a space opera, but the series is a space opera. Um, it grows pretty slowly over the course of each book. You know, there's only two books currently and a third that will be coming. Hopefully there will be a fourth, um, maybe more, who knows. Um, but it will grow into what more people would call a space opera over time but the first book is very contained you know there are very few locations um it takes place over a course of i think about 30 hours total um like you see every moment of that those characters experiences and that's not really what i think most people would say is a space opera <laughs> um but if you look at the series as a whole it would be and i think that is just kind of that kind of came from me wanting to take people who at one point were like me and were didn't really know a lot about science fiction and kind of ease them into, oh, look, you can read this. This is like a little more grounded. And then like as they get to the next book, it opens up a little more in the next book. It opens up a little more and kind of ease them into the whole sci-fi fantasy genre as a whole. Mm -hmm. Just hook them with book one and then shit gets weirder and weirder. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Jonathan, what about you? What was your uh, experience like deciding yeah. that you wanted to to write and and then choosing space opera as your as your methodology? Yeah, I too wrote a, a post apocalyptic um, <laughs> near future uh, that you know will never see the light of day. And uh, the time, you know, the time um, has passed. The time has passed for post it's like Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, when they put the Ark at the end right away, um, but. You know, I think what happened was writing that that other post-apocalyptic book revealed to me um, some restrictions that I didn't like. And I think uh, by going over to space opera, I was able to really kind of open up my speculative fiction wings in a way. And I wanted to unshackle myself from our history in a way, and even, even our scientific and ecological limitations. And I wanted to have real liberty with inventiveness. And I wanted to kind of go and do the long galactic history. You know, I, I was reading Foundation and things like that around that time. And I just, I wanted to kind of create a, 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 a epic that had past ages. And I didn't want to have to rely on deferring back to the real history or connect us to the history of, of, of Earth history. And I think that was one of the things that really was important for me. Um, 
And I, and I think that's really what, what drew me to the space opera context. Jenny, like you, actually, my first book, too, some people don't say it's space opera. And then the second and third book in this series, I, I feel like I started to get a little more expansive and a little more space opera-y. Because um, mm-hmm. there's only maybe two two pl- primary settings and one intermittent setting in, in the first book. But yeah, for me, it was about the speculation that I guess I could have. I liked that. Mm-hmm felt liberating, yeah, especially that, to, I'm, oh, I'm sorry. I was going to no, say go with my background as an art historian, you know, like I've written for so many years in an academic context where it's like everything has to be met from a research based methodology. I always had to point to facts and point to existing evidence to write something. And it just felt so liberating to, to just be free of that. It's like, I don't have to do anything in the format of a paper. <laughs> no, no, no footnote and end note. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, but God. no, but seriously, you know, it was nice to not have to, or to be able to invent, invent the evidence you needed um, and invent right. the past to make the present viable. That was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And now that you've written three books within the space opera genre, how has your perspective on space opera in general changed now that you've sort of gone through, gone through the battle, gone through the trenches? I don't know if it's changed too much. It's drawn me to some authors who I wasn't aware of that I'm really excited about. CJ Cherry is a new author for me um, who I'd never really read before. And I'm going back and reading a lot of um, her work and really enjoying it being that it's very character focused um, and has that kind of very close POV and expansive world. So I think I'm, I'm, I'm finding myself leaning into different authors maybe than the kinds of authors I was reading before I wrote these this this particular trilogy which is really exciting because uh, there's a whole there's a whole sh- series of shelves of authors who I'd never been aware of before and that's exciting mhm and adrian what about you has your perspective sort of shifted now that you've spent much more time within the framework of you know more technical sci-fi i guess in the in the sense of children of time and, and those books and then space opera with shards of earth I don't think my I don't think my perspective has shifted. I think it's it's been a real joy to kind of get to play with the sort of stuff that I always enjoyed to read and watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, but I mean, on, on, honestly, when you know, going because I started off with a fantasy author, so going to sci-fi from fantasy from fantasy was the same kind of thing. But yeah, I was getting to write the sort of um, sort of science science fictiony books i remember reading and now i'm getting to do the sort of thing that i remember kind of watching on the screen but um in in book form so yeah it's 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 been um it's been an absolute pleasure to kind of make expand my uh my range even you know even just with it with it within the uh within the science fiction sort of envelope mm-hmm. and just out of curiosity how is that shift for you going between fantasy and into science fiction um i'm <laughs> I'm having to fight quite hard to, to to actually write fantasy stuff. I mean, I, I am I am still doing that, but it is very much the case that I, I've become known as a science fiction author. Um, when previously I was very much a kind of a an epic an epic fantasy writer, and that's that that's been a bit weird because now it's it very much affects what you know, when I'm talking to my agents and so forth, what sort of books we pitch and what sort of ideas I I you know get moved up the list as this is a good thing to do because people want the science fiction from me now mm-hmm. rather than the fantasy. It's like whatever the fans demand. <laughs> um, well, I mean, certainly whatever the, um, whatever the publishers will publish. 
Yeah. But I imagine that was, that was quite a similar to Jonathan kind of liberating in the sense that you were, you were not, you know, Jonathan had his academic, uh bubble and you were in your fantasy bubble and then you got to break out of that and burst <laughs> through into into science fiction and and just let your mind flow and in, in a different way yeah it, it, it's 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 always it's there's kind of a daily battle to make to, to, to stop ending up in in just another bubble though i i'm i'm trying i mean i'm trying to keep my own personal ftl travel going <laughs> between fantasy planet and science fiction planet <laughs> And uh, Jenny, what about you? Um, now that you've written your two uh, two books in the in the Divide series and and working on the third, has your has your perspective on on space opera changed, or do you feel a little bit more um, how do we say comfortable within within that that realm? Yeah, you know, I think a couple of things. My experience is kind of similar to Jonathan Adrian in that. Um, you know, I came from screenwriting and I came from a very practical screenwriting background where I was only writing a thing if I had the intention to make the thing. Um, so I wasn't going to write a space opera script because there's no way an indie filmmaker is making a space opera. Um, <laughs> so I was pretty confined in what I could write as far from the script writing perspective and moving over to, I first went to fan fiction and I was like, this is great. Like I already got the characters in the setting and I can just have them talk to each other. And I love dialogue. So <laughs> that was uh, a lot of, of fun. Out of curiosity, what was your fan fiction about? Um, well, <laughs> if, if you don't mind sharing, <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, it started out Dragon Age 2. Um, nice. I wrote basically three full length novel length fan fictions for that. Um, and then Fallout 4 was really the big one, and that's the one that kind of kicked me into trying my own stuff because it got it was right when Fallout 4 came out, and it was a very popular pairing of characters. and um, it got a lot of positive comments and a lot of feedback and people were waiting every week for my chapters. And I was like, Ooh, this is fun. <laughs> like people want to read what I'm writing. Maybe I should write my own thing. Um, and that's really what transitioned direct. Like my first book is dedicated to that character. Like that was in that fan fiction. <laughs> um, so that's really what got me into writing my own stuff. And then now it's like, you know, in a book, I don't got to worry about what the movie's going to be like, because if someone wants to make it, they're going to figure it out. <laughs> it's not going to have anything to do with me. So <laughs> I'm just going to write anything my mind can think of. And that that is definitely exciting and, and freeing in a way, for sure. Do you think if, if it gets optioned for TV or uh, film or anything, would you want to take part in the screenwriting process? Or would you just want to you know, leave it in the hands of somebody else just to see how it turns out? I don't know. <laughs> I get asked that a lot and I'm kind of just like, eh, let the professionals deal with it. I don't want to do it. <laughs> um, cause I'm so separated from that at this point. And, you know, I never wrote for Hollywood, you know, I wrote for indie films and commercials and things like that. So I wasn't in that realm even. Um, so I definitely think, I don't know, it, it would depend on the circumstances and who was optioning it. And like, normally that wouldn't even be an option. Like they're probably not going to ask me. Like they're just going to go do their own thing with it. If in some world they're like, Hey, do you want to write this or co-write this? I would probably, you know, dust off all my screenwriting books and <laughs> figure out how to write a screenplay again. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would be a pretty exciting experience, but Hollywood is a, yeah, it's a fucking it's a whole 
Applebee's. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy industry. Yeah. Um, Jonathan, we'll jump back to you. I, I wanted to ask each of you um, what, you know, now we've kind of touched on how you got into writing space opera, what that experience has been like. I'm curious what your, if they came up at any point, what your intentions were um, in terms of uh, trying to subvert things that you've seen in the, in the space opera genre for, for a long time, whether that's taking something that was um, that a good idea that has persisted and you, you try to freshen it up and reinvent it in, in some sort of way or something that's antiquated and you want to either question it or um, introduce some sort of reversal. Yeah, I think there's two things that that stick out to me. Um, the first one is that, again, that liberation by separating myself and divorcing myself from ex existing, let's say, Earth history, was being able to invent a culture, in this case I focused on gender, where there's a kind of a, um, a diverse and um, accepted language uh, of gender in day-to-day -day life that is no longer a conflict and really um, exists sort of w without tension. And I liked being able to, to do that. Um, and I think that, you know, Gender is is a really important, I think, component of a lot of writing across all genres right now, and I think it's getting a lot of important attention. And, and speculative fiction has the ability to think about that. And I liked the idea of of having a world where that wasn't that wasn't going to be the conflict; something else was. But it offered the ability to inhabit yourself when you're reading the book into a world that was different. And I and I and I wanted to do that, and I liked doing that. I think the other thing that I wanted to do was to work with ethics, which is really what the series is about in the end. I mean, all three of those Greek texts that I refer to all involve ethics, especially you know family versus state, uh, forms of larger forms of justice, um, and vengeance, and cycles of vengeance, and um, dialectics. Um, and I, I really wanted, in a way, to infuse a process that led to actually hope, um, which I don't know is always really that prominent within. I mean, it's becoming more prominent. Hope punk is like becoming this, you know, term we're hearing a lot generally. I think within science fiction, but I really wanted my my space opera to go through a cycle that included a series of philosophical muses musings that could end on um, a tone of hope. Uh, and oddly enough, uh, you know, fiction, uh, no, fiction, fantasy was a really big inspiration for me. I, I had recently taught a class on um, fantasy art and the, the history of fantasy art, and I had the students read Tolkien's On Fairy Stories, um, which was a really interesting theoretical essay he did. And he talks about a concept called eucatastrophe in there. And I actually didn't realize it so much, but I ended up really embodying a kind of idea of eucatastrophe, where out of, out of something horrific and catastrophic comes the hope uh, and promise of, of a way forward. And so I think those are the two things for me that I really wanted to, I really wanted to work on. Um, was creating an alternative uh, form of reality for people to become inhabited in, in in the books, and then also to really work through some some rigorous ethical issues. 
Mm -hmm. And Space Opera provides the the perfect um, experiment, sort of like laboratory to to explore these ideas of uh, alternate cultures and and alternate representations of what we are experiencing right now. I think I brought it up earlier, but there's so much room to take what we are struggling with right now, you know, something like gender and how to uh, present gender in a way that um, there's unanimity across the, across our culture as to how we, how we approach that, how we uh, call somebody, uh, what kinds of pronouns we use, that kind of thing. And then you in your books use that laboratory to infuse it in such a way where the culture doesn't fight against that. That's not the fight, but you do offer insight into, uh, alternative ways of thinking and sort of get the conversation started as to, ah, it's this very subtle infused element in, in Jonathan's work and therefore spur the imagination of an individual reader of how they could go about doing that in their daily life here on earth in 2022. So I think yeah yeah you 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 had a, a good approach there and space opera is a is the perfect ground with which to to grow those those ideas. And uh Adrian what about you if you have had a certain intentions when when approaching space opera ways that you wanted to subvert antiquated ideas or reinvent the good ones? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd certainly, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not, I've certainly tried to be considerably more diverse than you might have seen in the, in, in early space opera days when it was still very, again, talking about people using science fiction to retell stories from other genres, the stories they're retelling are very white male stories and therefore the, the early science fiction retellings of them very white male stories and uh white male straight able etc etc um and so i've i've tried to broaden out from that but i don't think that's a particularly grand thing that i've done i think that's the thing that the genre is doing in general and i'm just kind of keeping pace with where it's going by by doing that it's kind of like feels like a bare minimum thing rather than anything grand um i think the the big thing i brought that is particularly me is just the way my human cultures interact with the inhuman ones um i've tried to bring a lot of nuance to the various um sort of alien species and um and society societies and to kind of subvert expectations to a certain extent so none of the alien species you run into are necessarily quite what they seem or what the humans sort of stereotype them as and as the series goes on, you learn considerably more about. So the one that look. Um, so for example, you've got one called the Neramathi, and in the history of the series, they are the bad sort of aliens that you can't get on with, and you have a fight every time you run into them because they seem to be utterly mad. And then people run into the architect, which are the main thrust of the book. The architects turn up and destroy planets, or at least rework them into weird artwork. They do it to Earth. We end up in a big war with the architects. And we find out that these Naramathi, the aliens we couldn't get on with, 
they really hate architects because the architects are the reason they're just wandering about with no actual society or homeworld or anything like that. And so suddenly the, the big evil aliens that we were tooling up to have a war with are our best friends because of the bigger threat. And a lot of the, um, um, I think one advantage to coming to space opera at this point when there's been a lot of space opera in the past, you know, decades of it, is there are some established um, genre conventions that you can play with and turn on their head because everyone knows them well enough to see what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the, the way that you approach um, from the reader's perspective, creating empathy for, for an alien species is is fascinating because, you know, in children of time, I love spiders. So I was all in on that. Uh, but I can imagine from the perspective of someone who doesn't like spiders that to go through this narrative and humanize the, this, this creature, these creatures. And then by the end of it, you know, you have so much miscommunication and it's the same as miscommunication on our own planet because we have so many, so many languages and so much variation there that you get this real world uh, experience fused with empathy of like, oh yeah, I've gone to such and such country and I didn't speak the language and this was my experience. And then you realize body language is a different form of communication. Or in the case of the spiders, they tap and they, they have uh, different um, forms of uh, vibrations that, that they use as communications. And the humans speak and the spiders are like, we don't know what the fuck they're saying because it's, <laughs> it's inaudible to them. So it's just their mouths are moving and they're gesturing in weird ways. And so I think that's a very um, thoughtful way to go about it as using aliens as a platform to create empathy for difference in general, difference of communication, difference of culture and all these different things. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I figured that there's literally nothing in the world that people hate more than spiders. In aggregate, you know, if you you every time I go on Twitter and post a picture of a spider, someone always comes back with "burn the house to the ground" or something like that, which does not in any way amuse me. Um, but it it think it goes to show people really really don't like spiders. So writing a book where with the aim of making people feel empathy for spider characters and even potentially side with them against the human characters was the challenge basically that was the that was the you know it's a book about empathy and if you can make people feel for spiders you can make people feel for anything even other people exactly and now that i've got a son i'm teaching him uh he he's obsessed with flies he just sees a fly and he makes this weird face oh and he makes that sound too <laughs> and uh anytime he sees a fly i'm like all right we're gonna go for it and i've got this electric fly swatter and then every time he sees a spider, because he doesn't necessarily have that differentiation yet, it's like, oh, there's a shadowy form on the window. I have to point out the spider and say, no, that's our friend. We leave them be. <laughs> so he's, he's, he's going to learn eventually. It's like spiders are our friends. They're taking out your, your dreaded uh, enemy flies whenever they get a chance. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really enjoying that experience. Uh, Jenny, we'll get to you in terms of how you approach uh, your writing within space opera from the angle of subverting uh certain expectations or reworking um old tropes 
Yeah, so full disclosure, I'm a discovery writer, um, or a pantser as it's sometimes called, so I can't pretend to have had any grand agenda <laughs> going into most <laughs> of what I do. <laughs> um, I literally sat down to start the last watch with that lyric, and that's it, and I just kind of started writing. Um, but what Two things that I did know and had thought about a little bit before I started um, were similar to what Jonathan was talking about with gender. I don't even want to say equality, but just non-existence. Like it just isn't a thing that seems different. So any character I write, if I were to switch the pronouns, it should read exactly the same as if I didn't. And I'm not sure that I'm always successful in that. You know, I'm trying and going through my own internal biases and things. Um, to try to avoid that. But that's always what I'm trying to do whenever I write anything, Um, but especially when I sat down to write that. Um, And another thing that I really wanted to explore, which I don't think is um, addressed in the genre much at all at the moment, is platonic relationships. Um, I'm big on them. My best friend is a guy. We get all kinds of crap about, oh, you can't be best friends with a guy. Like, how is this still a thing? (laughs) Like, I've had male friends my entire life. It's never accepted. I, it drives me insane. So I was like, okay, we're going into this. There's two POV characters, a man and a woman. They're never going to be together. They never flirt. They're just best friends, platonic soulmates, I call them. Um, and that is really the reason I'm writing the entire series, if I'm being honest. Um, cool, there's spaceships and battles and aliens, but <laughs> it's, it's all about the platonic relationship. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just, and not only that main relationship, but showing how those platonic relationships look between different types of characters, some of which are the sort of the half breeds I was talking about. You know, some are most, most are just humans, but, you know, just exploring a lot of, different types of relationships and how they look and just you know there's a little romance here and there but it's it's just not really existent um and the same sort of thing with the gender where it's just they don't talk about it it's just how they act towards each other and it's not there's not like a three paragraphs about how it works in this society it's just how it works and i show that through their actions um and that was really important to me to be subtle with those kinds of things um Another example is there's an ace character. They never talk about it, but there is an ace character. There, well, there are multiple ace characters, but it's never a thing where they're going to talk about it. I'm never going to market the book as being that way, but it just exists. And how can we show people how it should look in our society by just having it be part of every day and it doesn't matter and we don't talk about it and we don't ask them questions about it because it's just a normal thing that they're used to seeing. So that was a really important thing for me. Um, As far as sci-fi tropes, that's another thing where, because I'm a pantser, I didn't really know what I was going to (laughs) do. But as I came upon those, I found myself kind of subverting them. And I get a lot of comments um, from readers about that. Like, oh, I love how you, you know, subverted all these tropes. And I was like, did I do that? (laughs) Like, okay. (laughs) I don't know. Cool. Yeah. But honestly, I think part of that comes from, to be completely honest, I until I started writing sci-fi, I didn't read a lot of sci-fi other than those sort of classic sci-fi books that I read as a kid in like Star Wars tie-ins and things like that. Um, I didn't really start reading modern sci-fi until about four or five years ago. 
Um, so a lot of when I was writing this four or five years ago was just, you know, seeing video games and movies and using that experience to tie in. So I probably had less of an idea of the tropes I was subverting and it was more just like a happy mistake. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, which, it's, it's like unconsciously you're just, um, writing sci-fi in the way that I guess you're experiencing life in general, how you want life to be. Not necessarily. I do think it can bog some writers down, not all of course, but some writers can get bogged down by entrenching themselves too deeply within the genre that they're writing such that they absorb way too much influence from other writers. And eventually it'll just come down to like, Oh, it sounds like you just copied so-and-so, et cetera, et cetera. Or, or someone accuses you of, of stealing, you know, if it gets to such a grave, uh, and result. But I think that's, I think that's good, you know, and Jenny will, we will get into, um, sort of how the genre is evolving and if you're happy with it. And now that you're reading, uh, more modern science fiction, it'll be good to, to hear your perspective on that as well. Um, Jonathan, just a quick thing that I wanted to touch on before you brought up how you used, uh, Greek, ancient Greek texts and, and stories as a sort of um, framework with which to explore ethical ideas in this sort of dual, um, dual purpose approach to, to writing your series. So how did, you, how did you come to the point where you decided, I want to use these texts as, a, as a, an inspirational jumping off point? And then what did framing your series with those ancient stories in mind add to the story add to the space opera elements yeah so um full disclosure i wrote the goodbye to the sun um with that standard querying line um standalone with series potential right (laughs) (laughs) and so it needed to have its own resolution and ending but yet open the door right to something more um and you know which is very symptomatic of a lot of first books that end up going on to be series um and what had happened was i had written the first book the near future post-apocalyptic and an agent had given me some really great criticism which was love your world building love your writing i'm not investing emotionally with your characters. And so I stood I took some time and really did a lot of research on fiction writing and character building. And um and then I looked at different plot structures and different forms of writing that have very emotionally weighted characters and stories. And I ended up of course at the extreme example of tragedy and um, I started looking at different tragedies, and I really liked Antigone, partly for ha- things having to do with gender, but also really it was for me about the theme of family versus state, which I thought was a, is is for me a really interesting conflict. And at the time I was writing it, it was also during an administration where I thought family versus state was itself kind of a very strong conflict, and I was tr- I was trying to grapple with that. Um, and so that's how I got there. And what that did was that really gave me the ability, I think, to put my characters through the ringer. Um, And I also was able to use and really appropriate the tragedy model on top of a three-act structure. And there's some really interesting plot points with tragedy 
that are are unique. And I, I liked the way I could kind of get away from a more standard three-act structure and bring in some particular elements from the tragedy into that first book. And so that that's how I got there with that. And then what happened was when I got picked up um, and the publisher offered me uh, a series then I thought, well, you know, this works for me. I, I'm Jenny. I, I would die if I was just to sit down and write and pants. <laughs> um, and I mean, you know, I, I do discovery write, but I need I need some kind of a skeleton. And I thought, well, this worked really well, and it was really interesting. And so I started to just look around for more examples in the Greek context of ancient Greek texts and writings, and I came really to find myself at home in. The Iliad, and particularly the Sack of Troy area for a heist, which I thought was a really exciting way to play around with a heist. And then for the final book, The Humanities, um, part of a larger series of plays with Aeschylus, really got into some issues around justice that worked really well for me. And so I was able to kind of then appropriate those as models. Um, and I find my creativity really amps up when I have those kinds of sources to use and they're not retellings um but at all they're more inspirations um you couldn't point to a character and say this is this person's creon it, it, it wouldn't work that way it's more you know i want to take these moments i want to take these ideas from that original and reuse them yeah that's very cool and uh i think your approach is very similar to mine when it comes to writing jonathan i call it discovery outlining uh, and there you go have, that's it and then, that's it and then i have my then i have my skeleton that i can jump off uh, yeah. for the, for the rest of it. <laughs> yeah. I, I cannot, I cannot pants either. Jenny, no. I, I applaud you for that bravery. <laughs> I applaud you for that too. I'm very jealous. <laughs> um, I think to be fair, I, I pants the last watch all the way through to the very end. Um, but my other books, amazing. I, because of publishing and things, I have had to write some outline ish type things. So I basically had to learn how to do that. Um, but I, you know, I come from a screenwriting background. I've been writing screenplays since I was eight years old. Um, so I kind of just have that natural, like I could just know the plot structure without having to really think about it. And I didn't think about it at all. But then when I go try to put, fit it into, I actually use a five act structure now, um, fit it into that. Mm. It does fit into that somehow. So I think I just sort of intuitively did it because I had that experience screenwriting, which I'm grateful for now. So, yeah. but if I had my way, I would just pants my way through everything. <laughs> <laughs> Maniac. Maniac. Well, uh, Jenny, uh, um, do either you or Adrian, uh, have you done anything similar in terms of using, it doesn't have to necessarily be ancient or mythological text, but just religious history or history in general as a framework or an allegorical element in your, in your futuristic settings. So, I haven't um, you, Oh, go ahead. No, you go here. Okay. Um, I haven't really used a historical setting. You know, there's a lot of, um, in the divide series, uh, my debut series, there's a lot of sort of Roman inspiration as far as the military structure and some of the things, but it's real vague. And I just kind of did it because I was fascinated by the Ninth Legion at the time and <laughs> it just <laughs> happened. <laughs> um, but um, I am the book I'm revising right now, which will is in a different series as The Divide. Um, that was actually inspired a lot by The Phantom of the Opera, um, the book, The Phantom cool. of the Opera, actually. Um, so it's, again, like you were saying, Jonathan, not a retelling really at all. I mean, there's a couple characters where you could be like, okay, these are sort of maybe those characters, but it's really just more about the inspiration, taking 
like the themes that it touches on and like diving really deep into that and getting into the nitty gritty of the characters and modernizing it for an audience. Um, You know, Christine has no agency in the fan movie opera, like at all. (laughs) So I definitely wanted to take that and be like, okay, we're going to do a thing where she actually like has control of her life. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's, it's definitely this, a similar thing where I just kind of wanted to look at those things and, you know, dive deep into them and not really use it as a structure for the plot or do a retelling or anything like that. But more as an inspiration and, you know, like, like Jonathan, a jumping off point to be like, and a soundtrack to just listen to on repeat (laughs) over and over again (laughs) and adrian what about you i mean i've I've got a sort of a a standard melting pot of references that i tend to dip into and you know there's biblical and but also there's yeah there's shakespeare and there's a disproportionate amount of t.s Eliot. Um, which who who seems to I mean honestly as far as right writers inspirations go the number of people who riff or off or quote from Eliot in their work is crazy I don't know if we all had to do them at school or what but <laughs> everyone everyone seems to touch on Eliot at some point but probably a lot uh, of it is subconscious actual- at this point too it's like just through diffusion through society of quotes <laughs> that they don't even have any idea i can attribute this to elliot it's like they probably heard it from some other thing <laughs> I, as, as, as far as actual sort of mythical stuff one of my books is a stealth retelling of beowulf um from the point of view of grendel <laughs> i can't really say which one because it's kind of it would be kind of a spoiler <laughs> hmm. i love how you call, you call it a stealth retelling <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, I ideally that the yeah, I mean, you don't necessarily have to clock to it at all, but if you clock to it, it should be kind of within the last two chapters. You suddenly see what I'm doing and get very angry at me. <laughs> <laughs> and in uh, Children of Time, did you pull on the idea of like Noah's Ark or or anything like that? Uh I don't think I did actually. Um, I. I think, I mean, the, the biblical stuff, I, certainly I, I, I've, in several books, I've kind of played around with the, with the Garden of Eden um, sort of concepts. Uh, I mean, obviously, one of, one of the books I've got out is The Doors of Eden, um, which kind of touches on that. And there's certainly, you know, with the idea of um, an exodus from Earth, the idea of being cast out of the garden is, 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 is definitely in there. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I think we're going to get to the elephant in the room, which is just the shitty name of this subgenre that we all love so much. I just, <laughs> space opera for me is a very contentious title. Obviously, genre is a, a difficult thing to begin with, and it's shifting all the time. I'm looking at you, young adult and new adult and all that absurdity. <laughs> but space opera for me, um, it was a bit confusing at first to to sort of wrap my head around what is it exactly because I have an idea of my head of what space is and what opera is, but the two of them coming together for me as a younger reader going to a bookstore, and the book teller or the bookseller saying, "Oh, this is space opera," and I'm like, "What is what does that mean? I don't I don't understand." <laughs> so obviously there are theatrical elements to the genre and there are space elements to the genre. But what do you all feel about the name itself and if it even does the, the genre justice? 
So whoever wants to jump in there, Jonathan, you're smiling and laughing. So I'm just thinking of the, I'm thinking of the fifth element and I'm thinking there's your space and your opera, right? together. <laughs> even though that's like partially cyberpunk, I don't even know how to, how to really yeah, classify that's true, the yeah. fifth element. No, I'd rather not go first on this one. Actually. I'd, <laughs> I'd rather listen to, listen to the other folks if they're willing. Uh, yeah, I is, mean, oh, go ahead. Uh, I, I was going to. I, I think it, it it is a bit of a nonsense. I'm assuming it came about as by comparison with soap opera. I I don't necessarily Probably. know. I think it came um, about I um, think... during like the uh, the magazine days. Um, yeah, back when there was like aston- really astonishing far, yeah. astonishing science fiction and and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I'm not exactly sure about the direct origins. But on, I mean, one one thing. The names of genres tend to be, in general, quite clunky and ugly, mm. and either just utterly, utterly non-descriptive, as in this case, or cl- or just sort of tunnel visionedly over-descriptive of what it is. So I, I don't know if there's actually any way to win with um with 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 genre conventions i think they always arise organically and they always they they're never particularly useful or sort of aesthetically pleasing monikers <laughs> true and uh jenny yeah so i had a similar experience as you where when i was first introduced to that title which was when i was in my 20s like i had never heard it prior to that um i was like what is that is it a musical space because i want a musical space (laughs) genre but i don't think that exists um so i was very confused and i think it's one of those things where i think you're right like i because i had looked it up once and tried to research it because i was like where the hell did this come from it makes no sense um and i think you're right in that it came from sort of the pulp magazine era um and it meant something else, you know, 80 years ago, whenever that was. And it has just kind of stuck with us until then. And now modern audiences are like, who are just coming into the genre, especially new readers are confused by it and they don't know what it means. Um, so I would like to see it eradicated. Um, I don't know if that'll happen. I think it's one of those things where you kind of have to be in the know of the genre of like sci-fi fantasy world to understand that it doesn't mean what you think it means but that doesn't help us bring new readers into the genre which i think is obviously always an important goal especially you know now we're kind of living in a renaissance of geek and nerd stuff and we need to grab all those people and bring them into our world and we don't want to scare them away with like them thinking it's a musical because people have you know (laughs) thoughts about musicals too even though i still think that would be great (laughs) um but but that could be a genre unto itself it's just like space music yes cool (laughs) <laughs> yes, I would be fine with that. Or we can just take space opera, and make it musicals, and then call space opera something else. I don't know what the like. <laughs> yeah, space Jonathan. adventure, I guess. <laughs> yeah, space space adventure was exactly my thinking. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, that's usually just, what I call the divide. Yeah. Like I never use space opera unless it's like my publisher using it as a definition. But like yeah. I always say space adventure because I feel like it's just more accurate in general. Yeah, Jonathan, have you have you gathered your thoughts on this? No, not really. <laughs> um, 
I mean, you know, I, I, I definitely identify with when I when I tell general readers, right, who aren't science fiction, space opera specific people about my books, and I call them space opera that I always get the response of what's that. So it's like, you have to explain it. And I usually default to this, you know, it's an adventure in space, you know, or I say the expanse or something like Adrian mentioned something like that, that you know, brings up a contemporary reference. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't have, I don't have, I don't have an answer uh, on this one. I don't get, I don't get necessarily upset too much by it. It, it just feels like it's become the name, um, but clearly it has connotations back to that pulp era, um, for sure. Yeah, yeah, and it's, I, it's, I, it's, it's, I was gonna say it's funny because you know we talk, space so much, so much of the references we make to explain space opera you know, like Star Wars and other things really have that space fantasy component um, mm. to them, which complicates things even more. But. Yeah. And I feel that much of the, the mantle for this, for this uh, particular issue falls on publishers and, and booksellers and Amazon could probably change the game when it comes to to, yeah. na- to genre naming conventions but yeah. you know like jenny space adventure is the first thing that comes into my mind it's like it's an adventure in space perfect you know and if you want something a little bit more fantastical space fantasy go for it or if you want to get into harder stuff hard sci-fi perfect but space opera to me was always just this confusing uh thing where i just hear the name and immediately i just think of an opera like a literal opera <laughs> on yeah. the moon or in space or something like that. Yeah. And it's just like, no, this is the, this is totally, totally wrong. You know, you can have the theatrical elements. You can have music if you want to, uh, you know, a dancing number. But I think for readers, it's a, it's just a bit of a, a mind warp to, to have to um, hear these labels and then think, Okay, within space opera, we have stuff as varied as Jenny's work, as Jonathan's work, as Adrian's work. You know, obviously there's some overlap, but each of you comes at this particular thing with such different approaches. Um, so we'll see what happens. For me, it's just kind of like got to stick up my butt about this name, and I've had it for a long time. Well, <laughs> as as we all know, in space, no one can hear you opera. <laughs> right exactly no no one can hear me complain either <laughs> well um, i wanted to get your your perspectives uh we'll look ahead to to the future of sci-fi jenny as i mentioned earlier um want to get your your opinion since you mentioned that you've more recently gotten back into uh science fiction uh since you started writing the last watch in the divide series so we'll start with you what's your What's your take on on how science fiction, how space opera is right now, and what your hopes are for the future of the genre? Yeah, so I think, you know, we kind of covered it before, just as far as there's a lot of diverse range within the term space opera. So now when I pick up a book that I was told by someone is space opera, I read it and I'm like, was that space opera? I don't know. Because I still can't answer that question even after talking about it for an hour. So <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> but, um, you know, a lot of the newer stuff I'm reading, you know, there's just a lot more, you know, obviously just diversity 
um, of characters, of backgrounds, of history, um, of things like that, which um, I find super interesting because for me, you know, I'm never going to pick up a historical fiction book. It's never going to hold my interest long enough to read it. But if you take that inspiration and you put it in a sci-fi book, I'm definitely going to read it. So <laughs> I think it opens up what we're doing now with the genre is opening up to even more readers. And if we can, you know, fix some of these genre names and do some of these things from a pub publishing standpoint to fix, you know, accessibility and approachableness of the genre, um, we can get more readers in and they can learn those same sorts of things about more cultures and different types of people um, in sort of a, I don't want to call it safer, but sort of a, you know, more easily digestible way through the fantasy slash sci-fi lens. Yeah. Just to give people an easier, an easier time finding their niche essentially, because everyone has their niche, whether it's character driven or plot driven or what have you, or they like it more fantastical or they like it more scientific just to make it easier for people to have the diverse diversity there, but to have the ability for readers to, to find their particular niche and continue to find new authors who are popping up within that particular niche. Uh, yeah, Adrian, definitely. Adrian, what about you? What's your take on this? Um, I mean, honestly, I think we're in a bit of a golden age of science fiction right now. I mean, they, most of the go-to authors that I would say, oh, you really should read are people who are currently writing now, not sort of people from say the fifties and sixties or, mm. um, and, I think one of the one of the reasons we're in a golden age is a lot more of those those writers are you know they're they're coming from very different perspectives to the um to the traditional science fiction author of yesteryear um so we're getting a phenomenal you know in in a in a genre that's very much defined by imagination we're getting that vastly broader range of perspectives being brought to bear on science fiction rather than everyone coming from the same kind of social and cultural stratum. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's finally things are broadening out. And I guess that, that in part is due to the, um, to the, to the openness of the publishing industry in terms of bringing those voices in as opposed to shutting them out. Like it was back in the supposedly labeled golden age of science fiction. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly my my the impression I'm getting from from authors of other demographics is the battle is still going on on that mm. one. I think it's possibly just more reflecting the fact that society as a wider thing has changed, rather than yeah. that the publishing is is necessarily leading the charge on that. Mm. Yeah, and so it's just a matter of culture. I mean, there's the, there's the phrase politics is downstream from culture, but I think that applies for publishing too. Publishing mm. is downstream from culture, and the 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 opinions and, and viewpoints of the public and the masses and, and the readers and, and the writers themselves will shift the, the, the publishing industry, you know, even though it's a, a Titanic institution, these Titanic institutions yeah. can be slowly eroded by, by the, the flow of cultural waters. But I, I definitely think, really, more than any other, more than any other area of um, literature, science fiction benefits from that expansion, just because we have so much potential and so many places we can go. Yeah, just the like you said, the imaginative basis for this genre, for fantasy, for science fiction, 
unlimited possibilities out there. So long as there's an individual who has the desire to write something and they utilize their talents to present that. Um, Jonathan, what about you? What's your, what's your take? No, I, I, I agree. I agree. And I, th- I think it is a really exciting moment. Um, I think that just accessibility to information, the acceleration rate of discovery and technology that's happening today and our access to it just is a fuel for people with uh, an imagination who, who want to write stories that fall under this thing we call space opera. <laughs> um, and I think that, you know, that in combination with giving a broader range of voices access to, to publishing and writing the stories, I think it's, I, I, I think it's, I think it looks, the direction looks really exciting. And, you know, I think epic fantasy has seen in, in recent years, saw a real explosion. And I think space opera is kind of coming up um, now a little bit, um, really up, 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 up there. And, and uh, I think it's great. Yeah, I, I agree completely. You know, it's, it's nice to see these, these genres. Obviously, there are so many different waves of, of popularity, you know, and space opera has seen a ton of of ebbs and flows but yeah. i think the newest wave of space opera and science fiction in general is just just spectacular yeah i love i love everything that's coming from it and uh i'm curious what uh we'll sort of close out with uh with two things if you could give listeners and viewers from your perspective one of the one or two of the quintessential space opera stories, whether that's a uh, fiction or um, television, film, video games, that kind of thing. And then let everybody know what you're currently reading, watching, listening to right now that you want to share with them. So Jenny, we'll start with you. Oh geez. This is the time where I forget everything I've ever read or <laughs> watched. <laughs> Um, just default to Mass I mean, Effect it's fine yeah. I know I was, I'm gonna say Mass Effect um, so yeah I mean for me it's definitely I feel like I think of Mass Effect and then one of my favorite books is Rendezvous with Rama um, I don't know that it really actually fits anything a normal person would define as space opera but I love it and I'm always point, gonna like, who cares scream about, about it so here you go <laughs> um, so yeah those are kind of the the two main things, I mean, Star Wars, obviously, like, I do think of it more as science fantasy, especially now that I think about genre more. But, you know, back when I first started watching it and reading about it, I wouldn't have called it that or thought about it that way. Um, but yeah, definitely Star Wars as well. Um, right now, I am reading a bunch of arcs or blurbs that I don't know the names of. <laughs> Um, I'm going to skip that. Uh, I've recently, we recently watched, um, Arcane, which is mm. phenomenal oh. storytelling. Oh, I need to watch that. Um, oh, go watch it right now. Okay. We'll wait. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's so, so good. Literally the best thing I've seen in years, possibly the best thing I've ever seen. Um, it's really, really good. Um, and then we just finished Cowboy Bebop, which I guess got canceled. Um, yeah, which I'm kind of bummed about because it seems like one of those shows where, okay, maybe it didn't have the greatest first season, but it's building to something that would have been really good. So I'm kind of hoping that petition going on gets 
gets signed <laughs> by a lot of people so we can keep that going. So, yeah, I mean, I love Cowboy Bebop. That is hands down my favorite space opera. And that one does include a lot of music. So <laughs> it fits the category. Um, yeah, nice. <laughs> but yeah, it's kind of a bummer that the show got canceled because Netflix is usually the one who picks up canceled shows. So who yeah. knows where this will find out? <laughs> uh adrian what about you what are what are some of your quintessential space opera stories and then if you could uh recommend to readers or sorry listeners and viewers what you're reading or watching right now um so um i mean i'm going to be as good as my word and um recommend some some current stuff rather than um rather than kind of going going back into the the mess of time so i think some, one of the best um space opera writers you know, um, falling, I think, within pretty much everyone's definition of space opera, um, going on at the moment is Gareth Powell. Mm. Um, he has a series beginning with Embers of War, which is absolutely phenomenal. Um, yep. The main character is a former war, a sentient former warship, now pulling duty as a rescue vessel. And that in itself would just give you a fascinating kind of psychology for that, for that, from that get for that ship's perspective. Um, also, as as an example of um, more far out there space opera, um, Yoon Ha Lee's Nine Fox Gambit and sequels are really, really good. Um, and as possibly one of the weirdest things that probably just about fits within space opera, Tamsin Muir's Gideon the Ninth um, yeah. is completely bonkers, but incredibly <laughs> enjoyable. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's, I, I've also recently. Um, watched both Arcane and Cowboy Bebop and they were brilliant. And yes, I really hope that um, Cowboy Bebop gets um, picked, picked up for a second series. It really deserves one. Mm -hmm. um, I'm currently reading James Smythe's The Edge, which is, I think, the third of his very, very weird series that began with The Explorer, which is kind of psychological space horror, I guess you'd call it. Cool. Very, very good books. Awesome. And uh, Jonathan, what about you? What are some quintessential uh, space yeah. opera stories and recommendations of what you're currently reading, watching? I, I don't watch a lot of anything. I need to get caught up on all the watching that you all do. I don't. I, I have to do that. Um, <laughs> you're a teacher, man. It's okay. Yeah. No. I, I, but um, <laughs> I'm also going to stick with more. I think more recent. But I just wanted to second Gareth Powell from Adrian too. Gareth Powell's Embers of War series was one of the inspirations of the way I wrote my series. Actually, the first person in there was really powerful. Um, and some broken heroes, war-torn heroes, was really important. Um, Artifact Space by Miles Cameron, um, yeah. I thought was absolutely spectacular. I thought it checked every box. It was one of the best things I've read for space opera in the last year or so. Um, and it was fascinating how he integrated a lot of, I think, um, fa fantasy and medieval and um, earlier ideas into there. So Artifact Space by Miles Cameron, which I, I recently read. Um, and whether or not it's space opera um, or too short or too expan not expansive enough, I'm shouting out Murderbot. Um, Hell just, yes. Just to yeah. shout it out because uh, <laughs> man, oh man. Um, and they are just fantastic. And if anyone hasn't read Murderbot, please do. It's in the writing, I think, is absolutely wonderful. I, I, I liken it to like literary filet mignon. It is like it's so lean <laughs> and pared down and it's beautiful. Um 
it's and it's really really wonderful. So th- those are some recs. Um, and right now I'm reading. I'm going to just give a shout out actually to a historical fantasy. I'm reading uh, Marion L. Thorpe's Empire's Legacy series, which is a imagine. We were talking about inspirations. It's an imaginative re reinterpretation of a late Roman empire set in an imaginary version of England. Um, and it's, and it's, it's, it's very interesting. Um, it's really great. So. Fantastic. And I, Empire's Empire's daughter is the first book. Empire's daughter. Okay. And I wholeheartedly second Murderbot diaries. Love that series so much. That is my palate cleanser when I'm, when I'm reading (laughs) other stuff. Because the novella, like you say, it's lean, like filet mignon, and that novella oh. format just, oh, perfect. I read that between chunkier things like what Adrian writes. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Adrian, you brought it up earlier, The Expanse. Either the TV show or the book series, both are absolutely fantastic. Um, the TV show does some interesting things in terms of reinterpreting it to the visual medium that I think work very successfully. And if anyone likes to to read things that are finished, the series wrapped up last December. So uh, know that if you start it, you can finish it. And also the first book, uh, we were talking about genre mashups earlier. The first book, every book sort of takes a different uh, genre and inter, interweaves it with space opera. And the first book is noir. And one of the main POV characters is a, is a detective uh, living on an asteroid colony and it is freaking fantastic. And if you like that book, the rest of them will surely satisfy you. Um, but yeah, the expanse definitely. And I want to thank you all so much, Jenny, Jonathan, Adrian, for joining me and digging into the fascinating wild world of space opera. If you could let listeners and viewers know where to find you on social media, where they can pick up your books. Um, Now's a good time. So we'll start with you, Jenny. Yeah, so I'm on all social platforms at JS Dewis. So it's J-S-D-E-W-E-S. Um, and my website, jsdewis.com. And um, yeah, my books are on uh, paperback, audio, ebook, anywhere books are sold. You should be able to find them. Fantastic. And Adrian? Um, I'm mostly available, accessible via Twitter at at apt shadow apt and then shadow um other than that i've got a website which is shadows of the apt.com this, this is all based on my original fantasy series and is a bit outdated and we're looking to change it um it has shadows to be science fiction related at this point <laughs> yeah it's not terribly up to date to be honest because i find it quite hard to do writing stuff that isn't actually writing books <laughs> And uh, Adrian, all of your work is available. Uh, Yes, uh, I mean, uh, to a certain extent, some of it may depend on where you are. Um, Some of the the books don't have a release outside the UK. Um, We're working on it, but most of it, I think you can probably get um, certainly in the States and Canada now. And uh, when does uh, Eyes of the Void release? Um, it's end of April, beginning of May, depending on precisely where you are. But that is that is getting a kind of a, a general um, UK and US release within a, within a week or so of it. 
fantastic. And that's the sequel to Shards of Earth. So Yes, and the third one, yeah. and just in case if anyone's worried I'm going to drop dead, the third one is written and delivered. Um, <laughs> so it will happen. <laughs> Uh, there's no point sending out assassins you can't stop it that's a, that's a fantastic frame for alleviating all of your readers <laughs> worries I'm not gonna drop dead don't worry about it oh and um the third children on book should be out about the end of this year as well awesome awesome and jonathan where can uh, everyone find you on social media and find your work Sure. Uh, Twitter and Instagram uh, are my main social venues. Jay Navare on both. Uh, you can get to me or my website. And um, the Windtide trilogy should be available on most most of your usual um, venues that you would get to. Um, audio is, I think, coming this year, which is exciting. Awesome. Will you be doing all three books uh, at the same time? uh that is yet to be seen i hope i hope so okay. and i have a release coming in november as well this year later in this year what's the title of your november oh, release? um shadow spark publishing it's uh stellar instinct and it's a standalone space opera it's a spy thriller awesome yeah, you gotta pimp your work jonathan come on man sorry yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm still recovering from my tech issues at the beginning it's okay <laughs> It's all working out. It's okay. But thank you all so much for, for being here. I had a great time chatting with you. And yeah, I look forward to seeing you all again. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks thank for having us. Thank you very much. Thank you. And there we have it. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed our panel on space opera. Thank you again to our guests this episode, Adrian, Jenny, and Jonathan. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us on your platform of choice, and share us with your friends. It helps a lot and we greatly appreciate it. You can also follow SFF Addicts on Twitter or Instagram at SFF Addicts Pod for updates and more. And you can follow me, Adrian M. Gibson, on Twitter or Instagram at Adrian M. Gibson. SFF Addicts is part of FanFiAddict.com, so make sure to check us out there for the latest in book reviews, essays, and all things sci-fi and fantasy, as well as the full episode archive for the podcast. And for all your literature needs, head over to thebrokenbinding.co.uk. All music comes courtesy of the talented Astronauts. Check them out on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash S-T-R-O-N-O-Z. All links for the episode are also available in the show notes. Now, keep reading, keep imagining, and we'll see you next time on SFF Addicts. <laughs>